Section 10 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare of Hall M. A. Linebarger. Chapter 6A Psychological Warfare in World War II, Part 1. Chapter 6 Psychological Warfare in World War II. Bolshevik accomplishments in psychological warfare were often regarded as part of the peculiar mischief of Marxism, not as techniques which could be learned and used by other people. Similarly, the history-making sweep of the Chinese nationalist armies northward in 1922-1927 was considered to be specially and incomprehensibly Chinese. Possible lessons which might have been learned from Chinese communist psychological warfare were often left unheeded by officials and students in the West. Meanwhile, Germany, the greatest power of Europe, had been fighting bitter internal psychological warfare battles which looked like heated internal politics. Not until Adolf Hitler assumed the Reich's chancellorship and began using his brown shirt methods for foreign affairs that other people wake up to the existence and application of the new weapon. The War College files, for example, show that not one single officer was assigned full-time to study of these problems during 1925 to 1935. For the entire period 1919 to 1929, there are listed only two War College research papers on the subject. Yet the American army was far from negligent. It was an excellent army, though crippled by outright poverty of personnel and materials. The army was simply American, and like the rest of America for a while took the world for granted. The National Socialist German Workers' Party, as Hitler called his movement, was a conglomerate built up around a few determined fanatics. The Nazis do not appear to have believed their own doctrines to anything like the degree to which the communists believed theirs. From the first, the Nazis regarded propaganda very cautiously as a new fierce instrument which led to the accomplishment of modern power. The communists had proclaimed that democracy was a fake. The Nazis agreed. The communists have shown that a minority with a sacred mission of its own invention could get mass support for a government that claimed to be for the people, even though it was obviously not by the people nor of them. The Nazis took this as a model. The communists have shown that a modern man-god could be set up and worshipped in a 20th century state and called leader, both hidden Russian. The Nazis elevated the Soviet practice all the way into a principle, the principle of the leader, few her in German. The communists have shown that an organization calling itself a party, actually a quasi-religious hierarchy with strong internal discipline, definite membership, and active organizational components could control 50 times its own membership. The Nazis organized the same general sort of party, copying the Italian fascists in part, but copying more from the direct example of the German communists right in front of them. 
The communists have shown that such a movement needed to have youth branches, women's organizations, labor sections, clubs of its own, and so on, causing this mass organization. The Nazis copied this too. The machinery of Nazism was in many ways a copy of communism, applied to allegedly different ends. The Nazis had an Aryan myth, the communists had their pseudo-economics. But the important thing about them both was the destruction of the end by the means. The problem of getting and keeping power despite the people was so obsessive that propaganda became all-important. Theoretically, the end to the Nazi German world rule to the communists, the fulfillment of history and universal communism, was the most important thing. But since any means at any time which led to that end was good, and since the party bosses were the sole ones who could determine whether a particular action led to the very remote end or not, the outcome in both Russia and Germany became the consciousness seeking of power for its own sake. The new psychological warfare, a cause as well as a means of World War II, arose from the subjection of other considerations to propaganda. The propaganda addict takes everything with a ton of salt. What he does believe is lost in what he doesn't believe. The ordinary control of civilized life, regard for truth, regard for law, respect for neighbors, obedience to good manners, love of God, cease to operate effectively because the propaganda dizzy man sees in everything its propaganda content and nothing else. Everything from a girl dancing on a stage to an ecclesiastic officiating in a cathedral is either for him or against him. Nothing is innocent. Nothing is pleasurable. Everything is connected with his diseased apprehension of power. Before he gets power, he hates the people who have power. He does not trust their intelligence, esteem their personalities, believe in their goodwill, or credit their motives. They must be scum because they hold power when he, the propaganda-infatuated man, is a member of the group that should hold it. Yet when such a man comes to power, he hates his colleagues and comrades. Remembering the cold, cynical way in which he himself sought power, knowing that his brother fanatics have the same ruthless arrogance, the propaganda-using party men cannot trust anyone. Blood purges, mass trials, liquidations, removal of families, concealment of crimes, all these result from the establishment of propaganda in an overdeveloped role. It is against such people that we, ordinary folk, Americans, dared wage psychological warfare during World War II. Propaganda had grown into ideology. The world was convulsed with monstrous new religions. For instance, the greatest journalist of the Soviet Union, Karl Radak, was placed on trial for treason. He was asked by the prosecutor, Vyshinsky, these actions of yours were deliberate? Radak answered, apart from sleeping, I have never in my life committed any undeliberate actions. This answer sums up the mood of the totalitarian who is obsessed by propaganda. He comes to believe that all activity, whether his own or of other people, has meaning. 
He had developed the sense of responsibility that made him violate tenets which Americans in a free society regard as fundamental to human nature. Things like self-respect, kindliness, love of family, pity for the unfortunate. This kind of mentality was found chiefly in the National Socialist and Communist states, and to a lesser degree in dictatorships such as Italy. By contrast, reactionary Japan was almost democratic. This mentality makes it possible for the ruler to control his own people enough to undertake warfare psychologically waged. Without domestic fanaticism and domestic terror, governments have to fall back on psychological warfare. That is, the mere supplementing of politics and military operations by propaganda. It is vain to expect a free people in a free country to submit to such humiliating control, even for the purpose of winning a war. What made the psychological warfare World War II peculiar was the fact that our enemies fought one kind of war, warfare psychologically waged or total war, and we fought them back with another. Theoretically, it is possible to argue that we had no business succeeding, but we did succeed. The Pre-Belligerent Stages the propaganda-cautious Axis states had first to control their own people enough to wage aggressive war. They then had to split their possible enemies to make piecemeal victory possible. They had to stay on good terms with the Soviet Union, Hitler till 1941, Japan till the last week of war. They had to frighten their immediate enemies while assuring their eventual enemies. This called for a great deal of propaganda. Pre-belligerent operations required extensive use of black propaganda. Since their political systems aroused hostility and anger in audiences, which they wished to address, the aggressors sought to disguise their propaganda. They used pacifist groups to keep the democracies from rearming. Militarist groups were encouraged to keep the democracies from undertaking domestic reforms or discussing military matters with Russia. Financial groups were contacted to preserve the fiction of normal international relations. Cultural groups were employed to preserve friendliness for their respective nationalities as such. The Japanese did a little global propaganda and for a while subsidized several magazines in this country, but in general they concentrated their main effort in the immediate area of their military operations. It was the Germans who developed worldwide pre-belligerent propaganda to a fine art. They exploited every possible disunity which could contribute to the weakness of an enemy. They were not choosy about collaborators. If the Communist Party of the United States lent a hand, as it did between September 1939 and June 1941, terming the war an imperialist war, after Russia got in, the war was called the Democratic Anti-Fascist War, the Nazis did not object. They willingly listened to men who had fantastic schemes for world peace and later used such men as aides in getting appeasement. They tried to rouse Catholics against Communists, Communists against Democrats, Gentiles against Jews, Whites against Negroes, 
the poor against the rich, the rich against the poor, British against Americans, Americans against British, anyone against anyone, as long as it delayed action against Germany and weakened the enemy potential. They went to special pains to organize German-speaking minorities in non-German countries, but they never neglected using people who had no open connection with Nazism at all. This work was performed so far as the open propaganda itself was concerned through the instrumentalities of the Reich's Ministry for Propaganda and Popular Enlightenment under control of that malignant intelligence, Paul Joseph Goebbels. The broader program was not solely a publicity matter and was operated chiefly through party channels. The German capacity to learn was demonstrated by the contrast between World War I and World War II. In World War I, the Germans lacked political motifs, professionalism, and coordination. In World War II, they had all of these. German Accomplishments Three basic propaganda accomplishments were achieved by the Germans. First, in the political warfare field, they succeeded in making large sections of world opinion believe that the world's future was a choice between communism and fascism. Since they and the communists agreed on this, the point seemed well taken. Actually, there is no historical or economic justification for supposing that those two forms of dictatorship constitute a real choice in the first place, or that the civilized and truly free countries need ever depart from their ancient freedoms in the second place. Second, in the strategic field, they made each victim seem the last. There was still hope that war would not arise, even while the Spanish Republic was being strangled before the eyes of the world. The British hoped that they could stay out even after Czechoslovakia fell. Astute though the Russians were, they hoped to stay out even after Britain and France fought. And as late as December 6, 1941, many Americans still believed that the United States would avoid war. This suited the Nazis' book, Take Them On One at a Time. Thirdly, in the purely psychological field, the Germans used outright fright. They made their own people afraid of communist liquidations. They brazenly showed movies of their blitzregs to the governing groups of prospective victims, just to lower morale. When one nation is really ready to fight, and the other knows it, the nation that doesn't want to fight can be reduced to something resembling a nervous breakdown by constant uncertainty. The author was in Chongqing during the summer of 1940 when the German's propaganda agent, Wolf Shenke, showed these German movies to the Chinese leaders. The author asked for an invitation and did not get it. It was for Chinese only, said Shenke, but the Chinese were not awed or made fearful of the power of Japan's ally. They simply said, Nice movie, that's the kind of thing we used to do in the Qin Dynasty, and let it go at that. The British-German Radio War 
with the outbreak of war the british and germans found radio at hand neither had to change broadcasting policies a great deal each could reach almost all of europe on standard wave each could jam the other's wavelengths never with complete success and the struggle centered around a contest for attention who could get the most attention who could get the most credence who could affect the beliefs emotions loyalties of friendly neutral and enemy listeners the most figure 14 radio program leaflet nco 1944 these leaflets were dropped by the Germans on American troops at Anzio in April 1944. They show an interesting tie-in between two forms of propaganda. The counter-propaganda to the British Broadcasting Corporation is slight. Chief emphasis is on entertainment value of the German radio programs. From photograph taken by Signal Corps and released through War Department, Bureau of Public Relations, end of figure 14. The Germans showed evidence of real planning. Their public relations facilities were perfectly geared to their propaganda facilities. When the Germans wanted to build the British up for a letdown, they withheld military news favorable to themselves. During the fight for Norway, they even spread rumors of British successes Knowing that the British morale went up for a day or two, it would come down all the harder when authentic bad news came through the war office. When the Germans wanted to turn on a war of nerves, their controlled press screamed against the victim. When they turned it off, their press was silent. The Germans thus had the advantage of not needing to make much distinction between news, publicity, and propaganda. All three serve the same purpose, the immediate needs of the Reich. Figure 15, Radio Leaflet Surrender Form Anzio 1944. Willingness of prisoners to surrender sometimes involves speedy communication of their names to their families, as in the preceding illustrations. At other times, prisoners are very unwilling to be identified and want their faces masked. This leaflet combines radio program announcements with the standard surrender pass. End of figure 15. The Germans put on the following types of news propaganda. Number one, official OKW Oberkommando der Wehrmacht or Wehrmacht HQ communiques. These rarely departed from the truth. Though they naturally gave favorable situations in detail, an unfavorable one scantily. Number two, official government releases marked by considerable dignity, possessing more political content than the military communiques. Number three, news of the world, part of it repeated from the British radio, part plain non-controversial news for stuffing, and part, the most important part, news of genuine curiosity value to the listeners, but which, at the same time, had the propaganda effect of damaging belief in the Allied cause. Number four, feature items comparable to feature articles in newspapers, which try to concentrate on a single topic or theme. 
Number five, recognized commentators speaking openly and officially. Number six, pseudonymous commentators pretending to speak from a viewpoint different from that of the German government, but who were announced as being broadcast over the official German radio system. Of these, British traitor William Joyce, since hanged, known as Lord Ha Ha, was the most notorious. His colleagues were the American traitors Fred Keltenbach and Douglas Chandler. At the end of the war, Chandler was tried in Boston and sentenced to life imprisonment, but Keltenbach fell into Soviet custody and died. Number seven, falsified stations, which pretended to have nothing at all to do with Germany. The new British Broadcasting Company transmitted defeatist propaganda with a superficial anti-German tone. Others took a strong communist line and sought to build up opposition to the British government within England. Number eight, falsifies quotations on the official German radio. Sometimes it was easier to make up an imaginary foreign source, ostensibly quoted in the German program, rather than to set up a special fake program for the purpose. Number nine, planted news sources quoted on the German radio. A great deal of the German news was called out of Swedish, Spanish, and other papers which were either secretly German-controlled or which, as in the case of the United States papers involved, were so sympathetic to Germany that they voluntarily printed German-inspired news, which the Nazis could then quote from a neutral or enemy source. Number 10. Open falsification of BBC, British Broadcasting Company, the official British agency materials, as which the Germans were not necessarily got by their ordinary listeners, but at which BBC got them. Number 11, ghost voices and ghost programs transmitted on legitimate allied wavelengths when the allied transmitters went off the air or else interrupting the allied broadcasts by transmitting simultaneously. Figure 16, invitation to treason. Another German leaflet also from Anzio combines the radio surrender notice form with a political invitation to Britishers to commit treason. The Germans had a few British traitors in their Legion of St. George and a few American civilian renegades, but in general this line of appeal was useless. The last paragraph of the appeal is such naive trickery that it probably aroused suspicion in the minds of the men it was supposed to persuade. End of figure 16. Of all these, it was soon found that the communiques and government releases were the most important. Although the bulk of the station time had to be diversified with other types of program, the Germans and British both found that radio was important as a starting point for news. It was more valuable to have the press as in England or rumor as in Germany pass along an item than it was to rely on the direct listeners. Each side sought to make opinion analyses of the enemy. Some of the British studies were clever in technique. The radio propagandists had to ask themselves why 
they made propaganda. It is simple to make mischief, spreading rumors or putting practical jokes into circulation. Such antics do not necessarily advance a military political cause. Sustained psychological warfare required, as both British and German radio soon found out. A deliberate calculation of the particular enemy frame of mind to be cultivated over a long period of time, when radio stations had to broadcast day after day whether anything happened or not, it became difficult to continue to circulate news without faking it and losing the confidence of enemy listeners. End of section 10. Read by Shauna Baton Rouge, Louisiana, March 21, 2021.